street epistemology is a wonderful approach that anyone can learn. You can learn more about street epistemology at streetepistemology.com. I think we're live. Hello, everybody. Hello, Street Epistemology social media out there, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, Periscope. Uh, I am Reed. Welcome, welcome. And I've got a lot of people here today. What's up, you guys? What's up, Anthony? Hey. What's up? How's it going? Good to see y'all. Yeah, good to see you. Hi, uh, Jenna. W welcome. This is the first time here. Welcome. Hi, thanks for the invite. Sure, sure. And we have Dolly juggling lessons. What's up, Dolly? Happy to be here. And I'm Nathan... Abstract activist. How's it going? Hey, everybody. I'm really excited for today's show. This will be a good one. <laughs> yeah. So, Anthony, what are we doing today? Well, I share Nathan's excitement. Yeah, we uh, we have a video of a person, a bishop, a Catholic bishop, who did a, a critique of a manual for creating atheists about three months ago. Looks like it was recorded on September 14th. And then uh, I didn't even know about it until Doug from Pine Creek did his own review of it, which was amazing. I think I watched or listened to it two or three times when I was doing yard work. And then I think somewhere along the line, somebody suggested doing a breakdown video of it. It may have actually been me. I don't remember. It's kind of, we, we, this has been in the works for a little bit of a while. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of eager to go through it with, um, it's been a while since I've watched it. So it's a semi fresh set of eyes with some friends and let's figure out you know, what this person thinks of street epistemology and try to address some of the misconceptions if there are any. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Let's just jump right into the video. And at any point, feel free to pause and uh, give any commentary. Here we go. Cool. Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Got a great episode for you. We're gonna learn about a new book that a lot of atheists are raving about. A Manual for Creating Atheists was published in 2013, November 2013, but new book, maybe. Yeah, what? when this first came out, I, I had to check the dates because I thought it was three or four years old, at least. Like, I was thinking five or seven years old. Like, why would you do a review of A Manual for Creating Atheists? Maybe, maybe they just got around to it. Maybe this was recorded a while back. I don't know. But I did think it was odd that they were covering this book at this period of time. They do mention like you know the the pandemic and COVID, so it's, it can't be that long ago, right? I guess uh, it just finally I finally came across their radar, or maybe somebody surfaced it to them to to talk about. Maybe all right. Anyway, because it includes a new method for creating atheists. Um, we're going to hear what Bishop Barron thinks about this method. We're going to talk through some of the ideas in the book. So look forward to that. Before I begin, though, I'd like to creating atheists. I mean, it is called a manual for creating atheists, um, but uh, I have a clip later on that I'll explain maybe a different goal that the book has, and creating atheists is just a maybe a, a publisher, you know, thing to put on the on the cover. Anyway, I was kind of feel, Bishop Barron. Bishop. I, I was going to say I was kind of feel a little bit bad, like having to explain the the source material for the method that I'm out trying to promote because I think it's come so much further than than the book. Yes, you can use street epistemology to create atheists. I do think that that's possible. But I think we've learned that it's, um, it's a useful tool for lots of other things. So I'm not entirely worried that they're 
maybe fixated on that. Like, I think we have to kind of own that and, and just acknowledge that, that this is where it, that, it, that it came from, but um, it doesn't have to stay there. I think we, uh, does anyone disagree with that? I feel free to. Somebody, yeah, somebody said on the uh, Street Epistemology Discord that a manual for creating atheists is kind of like the Old Testament. And we have like the New <laughs> Testament, which is, uh, <laughs> which is how to have impossible conversations, which I think is great. I think we should, we should actually like use that and say that. Yeah. And nothing will change one jot or tittle from the old. No. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, the, the, the context are the same. So. I'm all the books too. Yeah. And here is the, uh, you know, the prophet himself, Peter Bogosian, talking about the gold. So I have that clip right here. This is funny I, that you have this clip, dude, because I think I was in this audience. Really? That's funny. Yeah. This is this is the 35th nice. convention in, in uh, Portland, I think it was. Yeah, here we go. It's like a maybe a minute. Portland represent. An indispensable goal is to be free from poor thinking, bad reasoning, faulty epistemologies, and free from the attitudes that lead to religion. What's not important is to be an atheist. It is important to be a person who trusts reason, who formulates their beliefs on the basis of reliable evidence, and who's genuinely willing to reconsider. Atheism is a natural consequence of possessing these skills and attitudes. Yet one could be an atheist and not possess these skills and dispositions. That is, one could be a doxastically closed atheist. This should not be an intellectual or attitudinal aspiration. Atheism is not an immutable, timeless truth. Atheism is a conclusion. It's a conclusion one comes to based upon an honest, and thoughtful examination of reasons and evidence. There you go. Maybe that clears up the title a bit. Yeah, I mean, if yeah. there was evidence, <clears throat> I mean, correct me if, if anyone disagrees. I think if there was evidence that would show that a God was real, we would probably evaluate the evidence, see if it's testable in some way, and then no longer be an atheist. But I think uh, even if that happened, like the principles in the book would still apply. They're still useful for getting down to the method the rel the re reliability of the method that people are using yep hey fanny yep this is live right now fanny okay. yeah all right want to keep going sure yeah. we're never gonna get there good to see you hey brandon always good to see you well today we're going to be talking about a new book i mentioned in the intro it is titled a manual for creating atheists so a pretty provocative mm. title yeah. it's written by a man named peter boghazian i think i'm saying that right he's a <laughs> philosophy professor at portland state university awesome. and the book outlines what i would describe as anti-evangelization or talking people out of their face so how do you have conversations with friends family even strangers on the street and talk them out of believing in God. Hmm. Um, the book is, I think, a little old. It was maybe a year or two ago that it was first released, but as soon as it came out, it cracked Order. the Amazon top 100, <laughs> meaning top is 100 true? popular books. Is that true? I've never heard that. I don't know, but that's cool if it is. <laughs> I've never heard us uh, anyone bragging about the uh, the distribution of the, of the first book or how many releases or copies it sold. I've never heard that number. Interesting. Yeah, yeah I would doubt that top 100. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe we can look up. Well, he thinks it's new. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I'm going to message Pete. <laughs> uh, okay. Did you know that it was top 100? It's in the world. <laughs> Sold out of the first printing, even during pre-orders, second printing in two weeks. There was a big Washington Post interview with Peter, the author, 
Um, and he says some things we've heard Bishop before from some of the other new atheist types. For example, I'm, I'm quoting him here. He says, faith is an unreliable reasoning process. It will not take you to reality. So we need to help people to value processes of reasoning that will take them to the truth. And elsewhere in the interview, he compares reasoning people uh, out of their belief in God to treating drug addicts. He says faith is a virus. And so we need to cure people of this virus. Um, guilty is charged a little bit from the language in the first book. Uh, I think a quote from the book is like, yeah, you will in a very real sense be administering a dialectical treatment to your conversational partners in a similar way that drug addicts receive treatment for drug mm. abuse. You will not be treating drug addicts. You will be treating people who have been infected with the faith virus. You know, yeah. charged language. Mm. Very charged. Language. But this was, this was the, the language that I needed to hear at the time to get me enthused about this approach. Because I was, I mean, literally, I was having horrible conversations and debating wasn't working. And it's like, there's this guy. And um, I kind of like the, the arrogant thing. Like I, when I was sitting in the audience listening to Bogosian, I think I even told, I felt bad about it afterwards. But I'm like, that was the word that came to my mind. Like, but like, I, it's, it's in a way, it's almost justified because the technique, I think, can accomplish what it is he's saying that it could do. So it's it's sort of like a justified thing, but like yeah, all that all that negative language. Don't get me wrong; like I'm not advocating for that. I think that that's really problematic looking back now in hindsight. But this was what year was this? 20, 2012? I think it was thirteen. I think I guess after the book is released, or about that same year, maybe. Yeah, it was it was a while ago, but this this was the kind of rhetoric that that at least I found appealing. Uh, but in hindsight, it is a problem. Uh, but Gojin said. I got a, I got a number here, Jen. Uh, Seventy thousand in English, um, thirty thousand in other languages. So about a hundred thousand copies. But I don't know what that translates into for like top pretty, sales or pretty good. You know, I don't think if Anthony, if you hadn't kind of done done your thing, your to SE, um, by the time that I found the book, I don't know that I would have read it. Just because of the title, because of actually the, how it starts, it does read kind of like a manual for creating atheists. Um, so I, I, I kind of get it, and it probably would have turned me off to it if you hadn't interpreted it the way that you did. And I think that that was mm -hmm. Peter's goal, <clears throat> totally. Um, but to see that in fruition was different from me reading it, if that makes well, any sense. Honestly, it's not like. It's not like uh, it was an intended thing on my end. Like I set out to do what the books like pur purported to be able to do. Right. But when you start using the techniques in the real world, you start to realize that, oh my gosh, these are real people with emotions and I don't want to hurt people. And, and that, that could be the consequence of it. So like there's this battle of ethics that, that you start feel, feel free to jump in if you, if you guys feel the same way, but like that, that really aggressive snarky, let me take your faith away approach just lost its appeal very quickly when you start going out and having talks with people. Yeah. It's like his language is for marketing the technique to atheists, not like <laughs> using that language and style to actually right. talk to believers. It's like maybe that got conflated in like the messaging at some point. Right. Like uh, here's some of his rhetoric to a, 
this was an atheist united here in los angeles so like yeah like, <laughs> were you at this one reed i don't think i was at this one i think it was like during december and i was at home but this was his kind of language at that at that time okay so um i would ask the same question to a christian um missionary um and not to be confrontational but why are you so concerned with poking holes in other people's Oh, that's that's so. The question is, why am I so concerned about poking holes in the people? I, I, I'm sorry if I gave that impression. I, I don't want to poke holes in people's faith, and I'm really sorry if I have communicated that. I want the complete and total eradication of the faith virus. <laughs> uh, the reason that I want to do that, and I articulated that in the slide, is that if everybody lived on their own island, or if, if we were in some kind of a matrix, but there was only one entity in the matrix, it wouldn't make any difference what people believe. But we live in a democracy. People have been hurt. We have a crisis in this country, and the crisis is that people formulate their beliefs on something other than reason and evidence. People think that they're helping themselves, that they're flourishing as human beings, but they're destroying their lives and the lives of their communities. All right, next question. It's hard to disagree with that. that yeah. That resonates with me a lot, especially like <clears throat> the whole, what are your beliefs predicated on? Are they predicated on evidence or some other thing? And I think that's what, when he's saying the faith virus, it's kind of what he's referring to. He's referring to whether or not we fundamentally care about evidence above all other things to, to base your beliefs on. Right, like if you're hearing, if all you're hearing when he talks is, I just wanna poke holes in people's beliefs, then I don't think you're listening. Mm. Yeah, it, it comes from a compassionate place. He wants to help yeah. people mm. live better lives, you know, more flourishing lives using a certain method of not faith, but reason and evidence. And if those are the best ways of having a more, you know, good life and flourishing life, and that's a good thing to do. So it, it just comes off as caustic and confrontational and mm -hmm. strange. As does, as does the whole book, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's some I mean, goodness in there. If it wasn't as, you know, the provocative is the word he uses. If it wasn't as catchy, you know, then I don't know that anybody would have been convinced that it does. For example, Anthony, like you said that you probably wouldn't have given it as much time as you gave it, right? If it wasn't as what you okay. wanted at the time, right? I mean, it, like his book, his first book was a very focused message for a very specific group who is struggling to have better conversations. So that appealed to me that it was so narrowly focused on an interest of mine, which was atheism. And st that still is a very big interest of mine. Like I think that, that appealed to me. Now, if he released this first book first, or I'm sorry, the second book first, uh, I doubt I would have ever seen it. Maybe. Like I, I don't know if the the, the the import. I don't know if the import of the message would have caught on with me if if it wasn't packaged the way that it first was. I can understand that. It yep. does catch you off guard in an unexpected way that sends you the message in a different way. How do you explain that to somebody that's not? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Let's keep going. I don't know. Hopefully, this is in the right spot. I'm also looking at the uh, the comments through the live chat on YouTube are filtering through to us, so we can see those. So we'll we'll try to address those here and there. 
Yeah, if you have one to you want to comment on, let me know and I'll highlight it. I want to hear about arrogance now. <laughs> yeah, what's your what what's your initial take on some of these quotes? That breathtaking arrogance. <laughs> I mean, and the the insouciance with wh with which those statements are are uttered to me is just incredible. Insouciance. And from someone who's a philosophy professor, right? Uh, the the ignorance of the grand sweep of the intellectual tradition. Because what that represents, Brandon, is a sort of popularization of a very narrow construal of Enlightenment era epistemology. But to claim that knowledge is reducible to uh, the kind of scientific method or the empirical method, the, the breathtaking ignorance and arrogance, because it overlooks so much of the intellectual tradition that is not uh, accessible through such a narrow, restricted um, epistemological method. So anyway, that, that's just my first. And then, you know, just mm. the it's too narrow. Too narrow. Well, I don't even know where that's coming from. What What did he see in Bogosian's book that was too narrow? Maybe the focus on atheism and theism. Like I'm on board with that. Like that's the book it. is too narrow. And is that it? Because he's talking I about think that's what he's thinking. Yeah, that's mm. breathtaking narrowness. Astonishing levels of oh atheism. to boil it down to just atheism. Atheism, I see. Maybe that's what he's Ooh. saying there because it's so much more flowery than that. <laughs> hmm. This is yeah. why I only use the atheism label among other atheists because otherwise it might do us a disservice um, if somebody doesn't use the label in the same way that I might or that other people who ascribe to that label would use it. Then it might work against us when we're trying to resolve a dispute of understanding about something. I think that's why the word agnostic is a little controversial in our community as well, because mm -hmm. when you, some people use it as like a transition word, like I used it before I was an atheist, I did still believe that there was something out there and <laughs> I called really myself agnostic, me but too. then there, what? I'm sorry. Me too. Yeah. yeah. So, but then there are some people who will say, Oh, well, if you're actually, if you're an agnostic, you're actually an atheist. I'm like, well, but I wasn't. So, it, it, I mean, that just brings us back to defining our terms, you know. Well, he does mention the big tr the right. tradition that that the book ignores the the great traditions, and I think he's referring to maybe his own special version of Christianity. That uh, it's arrogant when you put his this this book, a manual for creating atheists, up against the the vast tradition and history of the Catholic Church. Maybe he's drawing that distinction there. Yeah, he did say intellectual traditions. Yeah, and I think he is he's strawmanning science itself as like he said, you know, too narrow like empiric empiricism, like science is exactly empiricism. But I know Peter is a huge fan of this book, Kindly Inquisitors, which goes into the epistemology and ethics and politics of science and how that all relates. And I think this section sums it up beautifully, if you want to listen to it real quick. Here it is. This book has two patron saints, the philosophers Charles Sanders Peirce and Karl Popper. Oh, this voice. Peirce pioneered the insight that the development of knowledge is inherently a social process. Individualism and falsity are one and the same, he wrote. Without public checking, there is no way to know, even in principle, whether the man scribbling alone in his room is Einstein or a lunatic. 
unless truth be recognized as public, as that of which any person would come to be convinced if he carried his inquiry, his sincere search for a movable belief far enough, there will be nothing to prevent each one of us from adopting an utterly futile belief of his own, which all the rest will disbelieve. That's what the outsider test for faith tries to guard against. Science is unique not because it tests propositions experimentally, because it tests them socially through a decentralized public process that refracts and distills the experience of countless observers, reaching conclusions which embody the view of no one in particular. The magic is not in the experiment, but in the repeating of it and the criticism of it. One man's experience is nothing if it stands alone, said Peirce. If he sees what others cannot, we call it hallucination. It is not my, but our experience that has to be thought of, and this us has indefinite possibilities. Knowledge, then, is often empirical, but it is always social. By its very nature, it transcends individual effort. We are all putting our shoulders to the wheel for an end that none of us can catch more than a glimpse at. That which the generations are working out, wrote Peirce. But we can see that the development of embodied ideas is what it will consist in. What do you think of that? Love that. Well, you got all the little clips uh, tucked away, ready to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking, <laughs> sh- you're legit. I should have known. We got we got Reed here. <laughs> Came prepared. I wouldn't be surprised if Penn Jillette is actually live. Yeah, that'd be great. Oh, wouldn't that be something? <laughs> His voice seems very similar to the other fellow. Um, damn, what is his name? I can't remember. Some Christian uh, guy who narrates videos. They have a school or a university. I don't know. It's been a while. Not sure. Anyway, I'll sure. think of it. Maybe somebody will type it. Let me we'll fi- find some actual objections. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Significant yeah, hopefully. figures in just the Western tradition from. Paul to Augustine to Aquinas to Bonaventure to Mozart to Bach uh, to Descartes himself to who were Newton himself who were religious believers and that all these people are just what's the language he's using there they're like drug addicts they're just caught in some opium den of of illusion and so on just on the surface of it the, the arrogance of it to me is is staggering I agree with that. It's kind of, it's dismissive. I have strong feelings about this at all. (laughs) So you like the book is what you're saying. I mean, I don't know. I'm just hearing about it from you, but I mean, just that kind of statement is so boldly ignorant and arrogant that it's just, uh, it's just upsetting. You know, Okay. so in this book, I kind of, so as a, an alcoholic and truck addict, I can understand the whole wanting to refer to religion as a drug or an addiction of some sort because it depends on how you define the word and so i can understand how people can refer to it as addiction and not be dismissive of it in the way that this uh bishop seems to be interpreting i i I don't know that he was necessarily being dismissive when he made that reference because in a sense i mean if you if you define addiction as something that you're convinced that you have to have to survive and that you'll go, you know, you'll go to any lengths to get it. I mean, you can look at religion that way. And to some people, it's, some people treat it that way. And to be, not be able to question it, um, you know, it, addiction isn't something you can 
rationalize. Addiction isn't something you can just logic yourself out of. I haven't really thought about it until now, but typically people who are struggling with drugs or alcohol, we maybe tend to look at them as as uh, weak or bad people. Mm-hmm. So perhaps the bishop is drawing an association there that uh, you're a mm-hmm. bad person if you take it on faith that this stuff is true. You're a bad person if you don't respect the 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 grand history of the Catholic archives or something like that. That mm-hmm. maybe he's equating it in terms of a morality position rather than because yeah, I, I mean I think the addiction thing kind of fits in a way like religion is often something that people turn to to get through difficult times and it makes them feel better and it deals with reality sometimes to their detriment (laughs) it's a pretty good corollary to drugs yeah but i think it's maybe this the idea that maybe we're equating people who believe in god as being bad people which really kind of flips the message on its head doesn't it because usually it's the opposite way around yeah i think that's kind of just a reminder of why I think charitable listening is so important because when you hear somebody talking and referring to religion as a drug addiction, be careful because you may have an assumption of what that person's trying to say, but you may be completely wrong. And yeah, but interestingly, the technique that a lot of psychotherapists will use with people who are addicted to substances is very similar to what we're doing in street epistemology. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So I can understand why the author Pete drew that parallel between that. I think he knows people who are in that business that deal with people who are struggling with addiction. And what do you do? How do you break through to those people? And And it's what you have to do is you have to say your story out loud. You have to hear what it sounds like for other people. You have to see how much it's hurting other people for you to realize that it's actually hurting you. Mm. That's deep. It's complicated. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. He outlines what he describes as a novel approach to drawing believers out of this addiction, this virus that he calls street epistemology, street epistemology. It's sort of this set of tactics that allow you to have conversations with people who believe in God and sort of talk them out of it. The main way he does this is through a form of Socratic dialogue that challenges people's faith by asking them a lot of questions. And this model of street uh, street epistemology has gained a street Apologetics? No. (laughs) Huge following in the atheist community. You see this term pop up in basically every major atheist book since then. Whole websites devoted to it. The whole YouTube channel devoted to people putting it in action. Filming YouTube channel. Going out on the street and talking to strangers and convincing them that God doesn't exist. This guy's doing it. Um, What I want to do here, Bishop, is uh, talk through the steps involved in this street epistemology and get your I'm thoughts on it, them. Uh, uh, I'm taking talk. these from the website street. Epistemology. Okay. I, is there some enthusiasm around the method? Absolutely. <clears throat> Have I seen lots of authors incorporating SE and talking about it in books yet? No, that's not happening yet. That's <laughs> right. I mean, it, it's in Peter's second book. I think he mentions it, <laughs> I, I, but I'm not aware of many other books talking about it, but um, hell we're, yeah, are people recording videos and putting them online and that type of thing? That, that's taking mm-hmm. off, for sure. Mm-hmm. And that's some good acknowledgement for streetepistemology.com. They say that you are a reference. You are a, a what, what did I write down? Uh, Resource. Anyway, that makes me happy until I think of their epistemology. And then I'm told that I happy in again. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
What's the rule? Who so now the they're going to get into the nitty gritty of it. And I want to like keep track of how many times as they go through, they're going to go through like bullet points. I want to keep track of how many times he agrees with the fundamentals, like the principles yeah. within street epistemology. Cause we just heard a diatribe about why this is a bad thing to do. And I want to mm-hmm. see and test for that to see how many times I can get uh, he agrees to the to the principles one by one as we go through. Okay. Epistemology. So I can't think of a more definitive source. And they kind of group the process into ten different steps. So let's go through them. Step There's number ten. one is to just build rapport with your interlocutor. It says build rapport with your interlocutor before getting yeah. into deep dialogue. Try to find something you have in common. Taking the time to do this cuts through much of our natural, instinctive anxiety about immediately engaging with a stranger. I'm assuming you'd be totally fine with that, right? Sure. That sounds like a good basic rule for any kind of conversation. Sure. All right. Step two, identify the claim. Now, it says you may already know what your interlocutor's claim is. For example, you may have initiated the discussion because you overheard them saying they believe in God or they believe in UFOs or the supernatural. Um, But once you're actively looking to practice street epistemology on someone, you need to take the step of moving from idle chit chat to the worthwhile claim. He's saying it's actually about God, so that's good. Street epistemology are focused on religious claims. So the common claim is something like Mm. God is real and the Bible is true. And so they're encouraging you to ask the other person, is this what you believe? And this reminds me, Bishop, of something you've often encouraged, like make sure that you're clear on what the other person believes and that you're not just strawmanning it or coming up with a weird distortion of their belief. Yeah, I mean, fine, fair enough. But I'd also want to make sure that you're talking to at least some really well-read, well-informed ah, ah, I find ah. very often with this sort of thing, Brandon, is people Do you want to talk to that? To no, maybe, Scotsman. Do you want to talk to that a little bit? That's just, that's a no true Scotsman right there. Well, make sure you're talking oh. to a real yeah. believer. <laughs> if, only, if only real believers called into the atheist experience. Right? <laughs> what, what people need to understand is that these are beliefs that everybody is walking around with. So it's like, mm. they in their mind, they're qualified to defend and speak to how they concluded that it's true. And I think it's of the utmost arrogance to think that... Uh, to just blow that person off. That's not a qualified believer. You're not Bullshit. studying an apologist. They, they show up. They donate to your church more than likely. They baptize their kids in your church. These are the people that we're talking to, the regular everyday believers who act out on the beliefs because they think that it's true. Can we use SE on other more hardened, seasoned believers? Of course. Absolutely. It just takes more time in my view. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is a tool that can be wielded by anybody, regardless of how you your level of expertise on the topic. Well, but, you know, there are people like I've seen you even have a couple interviews with people who are literally they're just not even open to questioning themselves. And you can tell that from the get go. And you're like, this is the kind of person you don't want to be talking to because uh, because they're not close minded person. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, that they, was probably who that bishop might consider somebody who's actually somebody worth talking to. It can also be fruitful to talk about a topic in which two people agree to just check to see if you agree for the same reasons. Maybe that's a good you mm-hmm. totally different reasons to come to the same conclusion. Yeah. And you can either find more reasons to to believe what it is that you think, or mm-hmm. that's why you there's can 30, discover that the other person's been... Yeah. 
maybe somebody else is um, going around saying what they believe, but they're using all the wrong reasons. So there's no wonder why no one's considering what they have to say. So yeah. it's just a way of exploring ideas and reasons to see if our reasons are good enough to really support the idea, the conclusion. Yeah, would they prefer that we just stick to sophisticated theologians for Islam or Hinduism <laughs> or Scientology? Mm -hmm. Or is, can we talk to just the regular lay people about those things? <laughs> I'm open to it. My calendar, it's on there. Yeah, go for go it. Go to seek out Dali. Mm -hmm. All Whoever paused it, keep, keep going. Okay, I'll, I think I paused it. Sincerely people, but who are utterly incapable of defending their faith intelligently. And so therefore you do end up knocking down a straw man because they're, they're just maybe not skilled in that area. They're not, they're not uh, trained in the, in the apologetic or theological tradition. So I would encourage the street epistemologist to make sure he's not just. It's not because we're not skilled in theology. It's because we are cognizant of the scientific evidence around psychology and sociology that we're using street epistemology. And if, if, if I was looking for straw men to knock down, that doesn't end up getting us likely any closer to the truth or helping a person really figure out what's propping up all their reasons. So um, to equate what we're doing in street epistemology, I don't know if he actually, did he come out and literally say that we're straw, we're, we're straw manning arguments? I, I hope not because what, what I think is no, evident in the- He was the, saying that if we speak to somebody who's unqualified, that would oh. essentially be just going against bad arguments because they wouldn't be educated. Mm. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, it's kind of insulting to just people like his congregants or, or just regular believers. Does he think all regular believers or most of them don't have this somewhat, you know, more rigorous version of their theology? In their no, that would be a good question is what is your threshold? What's your standard for saying this is a person that would be appropriate to use this technique with? And then what percentage of your congregation would you say has that those characteristics? Wow. Good question. Good question. Yeah. Hey, you know, that's that could really be, that could be a public request. Hey, Bishop, uh, please, we would very much like to uh, engage with that representative group that you mentioned, and we even prefer that you select them and, and we'll be happy to work. We'll bend <laughs> over backwards. We'll make it easy. But right. yeah, by what by what parameters would you like us to be navigating your your particular de denomination? And would you recommend that we use the same thing with Muslims? I wonder okay. if he thinks he's qualified. Hmm. Good question. That's a good one too. Just talking to old religious believer, but making sure he sits down. How about with some philosophy or theology professors too? How about some experts in apologetics? to make sure this is not just a one-sided conversation. You know, zooming out a little bit on this topic of street epistemology, it does strike me, as you say, that a lot of these methods are meant to be used against believers who are mostly naive about their faith. Yeah. Maybe they believe in God because of personal experiences or the way they were raised, but they can't articulate good reasons for their belief. And so um, this philosophy presser is encouraging his fellow atheists to target identify and target these naive believers and convince them that you really don't have any good reasons to believe in God, so you should just give it up. Yeah, and Citation, that's just unfair. You know? I mean, fair enough. You, you want to engage anyone, I suppose, but uh, let's be a little fair about it oh, and make oh. sure that... 
It's okay um, to engage anyone? Taking serious religious people under consideration. Serious, yeah, so this goes back All to right, the I'm gonna skip point. ahead over the next couple because they're pretty straightforward. Step three is to confirm the claim. So ask the other person, do I understand you correctly that you believe mm -hmm. blank? Step he four agrees. is to clarify definition. So once you understand He's what the other head. person believes, make sure you guys mm -hmm. agree on the same term. So if they well, say, go ahead. Can I just jump in there? Because as, as you know, many, many times, atheists think that we think God is some item within the universe. And so I find often clearing that point up is extraordinarily important. I'd love to so start there. So there's this and there's that, and I go up in space Definitions and see of these God. items, and I, yep. I don't see God among the items in the universe, which is precisely what God is not. And so, sure, clarify the definitions, which I think would help the atheists understand how pointless many of their questions are, that they're going after something that serious religious people don't believe in. Okay. So this is something that I think we can all do better at as atheists or just as people navigating the world and interacting with other people, let's not assume that we know what they mean by their definitions of words. I, I think that's that's almost like SE doctrine at this point is to try to work out the definition. Do we always do it? No, I'm, I'm horrible at asking a person to please identify specifically what you mean by God when you say God, for example. Uh, I'm not very good at it. Very um, you, do you spend more time on it maybe? Uh, I think it's very important to do that. Like, what do we mm -hmm. mean? What do we mean by this? I mean, what is the claim exactly? Uh, and and try to repeat it using completely different words, and then see if they agree to that uh, with my words, because then we we can acknowledge we understand each other. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to tally how many times he's agreeing. Would we consider that an agreement? Because I think that was two agreements. He's responding. He's responding was... to. Uh, repeat back what you hear and make sure you understand it correctly and he's he's now saying uh yeah a lot of atheists won't uh interpret us correctly that's what i'm hearing him say and so is that an agreement because that's what we're trying to do is not misinterpret someone i think that's him agreeing uh, yeah i think well in the book purport well because he's comparing against the book hopefully right i think mm -hmm. Like this, this interviewer is giving him 10 things from the book, or is it from the website? I'm a little confused. Are we talking about the website or the book? There's a difference. But here's the here's the point that I think we should he be said careful. The website, I think. Yeah. We have to make notice his frustration there with people misrepresenting mm -hmm. his definition of the word God. So that's a learning lesson for us. We have to make sure that we you want a frustrated interlocutor who's who's thinking, this person's just talking past me. No, we don't want that. Right. Good stuff. Yeah. It's it's really Remember easy to assume. It is really easy to assume that we know what they're saying when they say God. Because we had the, typically from my experience so far, most people having these conversations have had some kind of belief in a God before. And so it's easy to put your own old definition onto something and not think about it. I do wonder where he was going though here with his definition. Is he saying basically like like these atheists are arguing against a God that is detectable in the universe. And my God, as I'm defining it, is this completely amorphous thing that is supernatural and is completely outside the realm of the natural world. He may go there with his definition, and that might be his way of circumventing some of the, the questions that might come up. Read this one, Anthony. That's pretty funny. Okay, so Philip Grizumba says, 
Atheists believe we believe God is a thing out there. Did he just strawman us? Strawmanning him? Am I strawmanning him by saying this? Strawman exception? <laughs> maybe, maybe. Like, yeah, that's, that's awesome. that is, I think that's what he was saying was he was agreeing. Yes, that's a good point. And he was just saying, but actually make sure you do it though. Mm-hmm. That's all. Yeah. Okay. So far, I've got Thank four agrees to core principles and zero yeah. disagrees to core principles. So let that cut both ways. Yeah. Cool. All right. Let's move into steps five through 10, because this is really where the meat is of this. All right. So that's kind of basic preliminaries. Uh, but here's where we get into the meat of it. Step number five, identify a confidence level. So I thought this was interesting because it's not just engaging the arguments in and of themselves. The street epistemologist first wants to get the other person to give a number on a scale of zero to a hundred that identifies how confident you are in that belief. So they might say, you know, you believe in God and you trust the Bible. Yes. How confident are you in that scale of zero? Like not confident at all. A hundred percent, meaning I'm absolutely certain. Where do you fall on that scale? Do you think that's a good metric? Is that valuable? Is that meaningful? What do you think about that? Go back to Newman on that. Uh, The first thing is a two-quoque move, Hmm. is that practically everything we believe is to varying degrees of probability rather than apodictic certitude. There are a handful of things that we we know with apodictic certitude, certain mathematical uh, givens, et cetera. But the extraordinary majority of those things that we hold to be true, we do so on the basis of degrees of probability. And that includes all the sciences. Think of of how much we know because of what we've learned from a tradition that we ourselves have not verified. So how sure are you of, now fill in the blank, or look at history. How sure are you? Give me a percentage, you know, that Julius Caesar really, you know, was killed on the Ides of March in 44 BC. Well, yeah, based on really the handful of sources we have from that ancient time, all of which could be uh, uh, deceptive, et cetera, that were carried by a tradition that might have changed the stories. And see, once you start down that path, everything we believe, everything we know, is always known to varying degrees of probability. You know, so in a way, it's trying to put religion in as this, oh, it's this uniquely unsure sort of thing. Well, I mean, Mm-mm. the whole range of what we know. That's a straw man. That's not happening at all. We're putting religion and the claims within religions in the same purview of other claims that humans make, whether it's a historical event or if it's that my spouse loves me or whatever. And here's what I want to know, though, even more fundamentally. Oh, did you want to cue something up, Reed? I have have something, but keep going. (laughs) Here's what I'm wondering. I don't remember much, much coverage about a confidence scale in the first book. Yeah. And even the second book, I don't maybe here and there, like maybe at like maybe one or two sentences, but not to the level that we've been building into real conversations. And uh, it seems like he's getting a little hung up on the parameter that's being used, that we're focused on confidence levels. And I think he's promoting we should be focusing on probability. It it almost doesn't matter what you base this on, as long as you're identifying like this is something that would really cause me to act out on it. And this is something, you know, that probably wouldn't. So whether it's probabilities or confidence levels or how much money you're willing to bet that it's factually true. Like I can do, I'm, I'm, I'm willing and able to, to, uh, to bet a million dollars on the truth of that, or I'm willing and able to bet um, 
So you can come up with different things. It doesn't have to be certainty or, or, or probabilities, I don't think. The idea here is to, is to establish some sort of standard by which you're contrasting a person's progress as you explore their reasons and methods. And I don't even know if there's much of a difference between probabilities and, cer and certainty or confidence levels. But m my argument is that it probably doesn't even matter. I think I can start going out in 2021 and come up with a completely different scale. Yes, it's probably zero to 100, but what that is could probably be anything. I don't know what you, what you think about that. Is I'm completely unattached to scales. Any scale yeah. they want. We can use words. I really, really think yeah. it's true. I really, really think Very it's Very a lot. True. Yeah. That's Fine. that's something that I learned yeah. a lot from t talking to a lot of you guys and Tyrone. It's like the numbers is just a way to put a flag in the ground and be like, this, this is where I was last time we talked and this is where I am now. Um, but you can also just say, how confident are you? Are you really confident? Or are you not so sure? And we're really just trying to I get people to reflect on their own psychology here and yeah. be honest yeah. with themselves about their their ability to ascertain the truth. Yeah, um, it's, a it's a question about their internal state. It, you could do like a, a hungry scale from zero to 100. If you right. Or to. pain scale. Yeah. Pain scale. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Doctors <laughs> use pain scale scales all the time. reads table that has no numbers or letters on it at all. It's just a dial. Oh, it goes it's a little gauge. Yeah, I, I like that one. And, and then I just sort of define it here. I say what this could look like, what that could look like, where are they? Mm -hmm. Meh, whatever. So, the one risk with the scales, though, especially if someone says I'm 50% sure, you have to make sure that they're not uh, they're not saying it's either true or false, that they're putting it on that scale. I want to get a sense of how, how sure are you that it's really factually true or really factually mm -hmm. not true. It's not a yes-no proposition. That That's a completely different scale, I think. Right. It's either heads or tails. Yeah. The coin is either heads or tails. What I'm wondering is how sure are you that it's really heads? Right. So there's two questions there, right? There's that yes, no, I think a God is real. Yeah. And then there's the subsequent one of, well, how sure are you? Or what's the, what is in your view, what is the probability that that's really true? Or yeah. Probability and are, confidence are subtly well, separate. I don't know. Now that you put it like that, that kind of, I don't. So if I were to say that, you know, obviously, if you flip a coin, it's going to be heads or tails. Does that mean that I'm confident at all that it's going to be heads? I think your confidence is independent of the actual fact of the matter, which is the case you with every claim that we have a 95% percent confidence that it was a 50 50. You, I could have a, you say could, that you again? Could be, you could be 99% confident that the oh, heads that or the, tails is a 50 50. That it's your a fair confidence coin. about the probability could be very high. So that is, how could I ever not be 99% confident that it's going to be heads or tails? You could think it's not a fair coin. Ah. Uh, Ah-ha-ha. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Or you're mm. in the Matrix where this one coin was right. programmed. <laughs> Solipsism. Yeah. yeah. It's a half coin. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I'm going to mark him down as a disagree to this principle, but I uh, I think that he's disagreeing for reasons we're not bringing up. So I'm going to mark him down for disagree on that one. Here, here's okay, my message. To, here's my message for. to the bishop or to anyone that gets worked up about confidence scales. Please don't. They're just a handy guy to get a sense of where a person is and where to meet them. Yeah. Okay. And I've made that mistake track, before. And maybe for sure. Really? And maybe track progress yeah. over time. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
I'm actually uh, kind of confused why he has a problem with it. It, you know, because he's under the impression, and when he says that you're acting like religion is this separate, special thing that requires more than that, when that's yeah. in fact the opposite of what we're doing. He's the one that's doing he, that. I think he's I the think one he that really wants belief, belief to be binary. Yeah. And yeah. the very yeah. assertion of a confidence scale says the belief isn't binary, and they almost have to swallow that because it's yeah. really hard. It's so easy to demonstrate. Yeah, I think he thinks, I think Bishop Barron thinks Peter Bogosian thinks knowledge needs to be as high as possible. We need to be more certain about our beliefs. But let's, uh, see, let's see how Peter thinks about that question. Yeah, Peter uncertainty. I think that gets back to the value that we were speaking about. Like, how do you help people to value saying, I don't know? How do we create a culture where that's not only acceptable, but where that's almost relished. I, I, I strongly agree with that. Um, don't pretend to know things you don't know. Be honest. Readily admit your ignorance. If you don't know, say I don't know. Don't be a fake. There you go. Simple as that. Takes a Who lot was of practice. Who's right? Who that guy on the right there, the first cut? I didn't recognize him. Doc. <laughs> <laughs> Zing! I believed you. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. <laughs> Take your atheist card away. No, I, I think I think uh, Peter and pretty much anyone who's maybe into if you're skeptic, you probably understand the the liability that can come with absolute certainty. I don't think any of us is arguing for that. Or um, you know, if if anything, I'm trying to call attention to the harms of being absolutely certain. Like, there's value in backing off on your certainty of everything that you think is true. Yeah, yeah. There's value in, in not having all the answers right now. If if you have no reliable way to get there. The problem is people think that they do have reliable ways to get there, and that's why they're so certain. And mm -hmm. as we know, a couple questions can be really useful in helping a person realize that they can't justify their own level of confidence to their own standard. And that's valuable. That's value. That's right. how we right. we turn this mess around. When people define what the, their view of faith is, I want to go with their definition of faith. And Peter just then defined it his own way. Uh, so just want to make sure we're not out here to straw man anybody. If somebody says, I use faith to determine with 90% confidence that this is true, then I want to ask, what is faith and, and how reliable is it? Can I use faith to determine other things? Um, but also make sure that they're using faith as a method. Right. They may not be using faith to use as, as a be. usage. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sorry, my family's making dinner, so you might hear some pots and pans ba um, banging around the background. <laughs> okay. okay. Who, who paused it? You get to unpause it. Not sure. I'll, I'll I guess really go. that kind of heading. And to me, Bishop, it seems like zero or one hundred is pretty easy to identify, and we almost never have that level of apodictic yeah. certainty or doubt right. about something. But then, in between that, how do you even begin to distinguish like a sixty-five from a seventy? You know, right. like a fifty from a seventy. I, I don't even know where, where you begin there. Right. I mean, how sure are you of of your even like your wife, your wife's deepest uh, convictions and beliefs and so on? Well, I mean, any couples will say that we become more mysterious to each other as we move through life. You know, the, the 
this fantasy, see, of 100% apodictic certitude, that's an enlightenment fantasy, that the light of reason shines, and then the things that I clearly see, that's what I believe. Gosh, almost none of life is like that. Almost none of life. This is, now go back to the critics of the enlightenment. Go back to people like Goethe and others. Uh, Pascal comes to mind, you know. Is, is It's such a narrow range of things that allow themselves to appear in that kind of brilliant, bright light. Most of the most important truths that we know are known in the in the twilight. They're known uh, in, in a what does that mean? Leading way, you know. So I'm going to resist right away this tendency to distinguish. The sharply. most important truth is the most vague. What? That's going to make more sense when he gets into talking about what he means by the word true. I don't. I don't think he's okay. I don't think he's using the word true to mean that which comports with objective reality. Yeah, I think he's I using a he's using a variation of the word true, which I think it's revealed further later. But I I want to point yeah. that out just to make yeah. I predict four minutes and 20 seconds or so later. Oh, wow. You must have watched this. <laughs> I didn't watch it. Okay. By, by the way, this is a uh, this is a slightly edited version. The full version we'll put in the comments of this video. Mm -hmm. Between the clarity of the sciences and then all this obscurity of religion. That's a false, phony dichotomy. All right. So that was step five to identify <laughs> a confidence level. So... Um, do you guys have any thoughts about the 6570? Because uh, I think there's a little bit to that, mm. but I but I have some thoughts on it. I think that there's there's a lot of good use for uh, asking if you're 20 percent on something, what does that mean? Is that a hypothesis? And just explore that area with them. If I'm at a one that the that the coin on the back of my head is tails, uh, does that mean I think that it's heads? Like having those conversations are good talking about the scale. Absolutely. What does the scale mean to us? You can have yeah. hour long discussions just on what the scale means. And I bet you have, Nathan, with all your all your yeah. interviews that you've done with that survey and everything. Yep. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> I mean, you've oh, done just a lot because of that. like well, I have an unreleased uh, interview with you where I'm like pedantic uh, about oh. the scale and I kind of I kind of get off in the weeds with it, but it's yeah. good though. Like I've, I've changed my mind since then about uh, how dogmatic I am with the scale. Mm. Like if, if you're at a, if you're at a zero, then you must think X. Well, yeah. not necessarily like uh, it could be different things. Like if I'm at a zero that it's tails, um, mm -hmm. you know, uh, I've had lots of different like weird thoughts about it, but I, I'm way less militant about, how I define zero and how I define a hundred now. And I'm much more relaxed with it. Um, it's really just a way to gauge people's like thoughts and feelings about their conclusions and less about um, being like, you have to accept my version of zero and my version of one. Yeah. Go with, go with whatever parameters they establish, as long as they make sense to both of you and just roll with it. Well, and you can say, you know, I'm 25% right. sure of this. And then at the end of the conversation, say, you know what? Maybe I wasn't 25%. I mean, there's no rules. That's the whole point, right? That it, it is it is whatever you take from it, right? Mm -hmm. it's an and maybe throughout the course, yeah. you, maybe you move up in your confidence because the person you're asking you questions helped reveal a better reason to justify right. your certainty. Yeah. Or your prob mm -hmm. the probability of it being true or whatever you've come up with. I See, I was thinking that... Uh, 
that yeah maybe a 65 to 70 would be would be so minor as to really not make that much of a difference but i think since our beliefs inform our actions there may be some actions that i would be less willing to do if i did move from a 70 to a 65 right like i may not retweet something because i've actually shifted in my certainty on that being factually true so there there might actually be a way to to observe and see how this is playing out in people's behaviors. It kind of makes sense, right? Like if if you lose your confidence that God is real, you're going to, unless you're forced to go or something, you're going to probably stop going to church. You're going to probably stop praying. Like you will start, you will start abandoning actions, beliefs that you take because you thought to a high degree of confidence that it's true. So while the numbering might be a little weird, it's the behaviors that could be fluctuating. So from the, from the moment before you recognized yourself as an atheist, I'm curious what your confidence level would have been from the moment before. I mean, I didn't, I, mine was a gradual thing where I was always probably like at a 20 my whole life, gradually okay. moving down. So, but uh, so my going to behaviors, you have to be careful. I was a kid. I was going to church. So looking at my church attendance as a, as a function of measuring my confidence level would be problematic because my parents were making me go, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, it, it was sort of a, a gradual thing. I, I don't know. Reed, you had a high degree of confidence that God was real, I think at one point, didn't you? Yeah, for sure. Very high up to high school and then got cut down after an Eastern religions class and then got cut down some more in college with an atheist roommate and, and got down a lot more around after college with seeing the atheist experience for a couple couple months. So what would you say was um, the lowest that you got before it changed? Um, when you say change, like meaning when he said, I'm now an atheist? Yeah, from the moment that you changed from I believe there is a God to I don't believe that anymore. What would you say the lowest you got on the scale? Maybe it fluctuated to like a 90 after high school and then down to 70, 80 during college and then way past below 50 after that. Maybe like maybe 50 for like a month or two while contemplating it and then much so lower. kind of from 50 to zero. Yeah. Okay. Cause I, I think I would say something around the same that it got down to about 50 to the straight up. Like, I just don't know which one to go with and then found out because I don't know that I would ever consider myself 10% sure of something. Like why even hold that as a belief? Of, I don't think we typically think about our views in that way, but you can like, I'm probably a 10 on some things. Like I'm a 10 that Trump really won the election. Like, you would know? you give it that much? No. <laughs> but it's probably like a it's probably like a two. I mean, I was trying to come up with yeah. a point. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like that that 10 to 30, 10 to 40 well, even. There, like, I, I could identify I even... something that would move for me from a two to a 10. Yeah. Like if I see video, it, video of some 10... shenanigans in the in the Pennsylvania wherever the fuck they were counting those ballots, right? If I see a 10% <laughs> chance of rain tomorrow, I'm going to be 10% confident it's going to rain. There you go. All right. That's, all right, easy. All right. that's an easy one. That's, I think it's worth, it, it's worth noting that people who are promoting this way of thinking about our beliefs are even still struggling explaining yes. it. 
So we have a long mm -hmm. ways to go on this, but I, I think we're, yeah. we're open enough to, you know. I want to be called an apologist. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I think we're I think I'm an apologist for street epistemology. Well, I, maybe I like evangelizer better. An apologi yeah, apologist means that you can justify something without justification to me. And I just don't, I don't know if I would ever want somebody to hmm. call me that. My definition oh. is someone who defends something to be the case. Yeah. I'm an apologist for critical thinking. Yeah. I like that. I'm an so evangelist. Is a lawyer an apologist? Mm, yes. Yes. Yeah. Apologist that, has this negative connotation, yeah. and rightly so, I think, because a lot of people have really perverted the, the usage of it, in my view. But yeah, it simply just means a person who's willing to defend a, a view on something. It's typically used in the vein of defending religious views. There are Muslim apologists, yeah. there Christian apologists. Well, right, but, but I think that it's important, you know, when I look up apologist, I, I'm under the impression that it's, it's a way to learn how to defend something Oh, well, without, there are... you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I think the defenses are the apologies and defending it is being an apologist. Something like that. So yeah, apologist people, people school. Just, yeah, people, I guess, would maybe read a few books or go to a seminar or watch a couple of YouTube videos and say, like, I'm interested in apologetics. I am now an apologist for this. So mm -hmm. like, I, I am often oh, defending right. street epistemology. So I think it's fair to say I'm an apologist for street epistemology. So maybe that's Sorry for bringing it up because he's about to bring it up. Well, no, I mean, you'll, it's, you'll it's, hear it's, this in just a second. This is important that we're defining our terms because it's kind of like mm -hmm. using the, the word connoisseur versus like a sommelier. Like sommelier implies mm. a certain a certain field Expertise. of study. Yes. Um, and a certain criteria even. But if you're to, if you consider yourself a connoisseur, that doesn't necessarily imply anything else. Mm. I think we're further illustrating the difficulty with prescribing labels to ourselves. Yes. And how we can lose <laughs> people in the process of doing that. Uh, so it's sometimes better to just say what we mean rather than use a label to shortcut the discussion. So I mm -hmm. would just like to say, I might be closed-minded to your idea. So to verify whether or not I am, I'm going to investigate your reasons. Mm. And I'm going to try to treat what you have to say as charitably mm. as I can. Because I want to be a model for the type of person I would like you to be also. I would like mm -hmm. to embody the, the open-mindedness and I want to listen to what it is you have to say. Because um, maybe I'm the closed-minded one. Really. Mm -hmm. So Could be. Try to be the open mind we wish to encounder. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Amen, brother. I don't think so, but I'm open to learning I'm wrong. So go ahead. <laughs> so the street apologist, he's, he's asking you what you there believe is again. about God. You admit you believe in God. I'm not an apologist for streets, okay? Zero to 100, <laughs> give him a number. Step Defend six is for him to identify the method that you used to arrive at that confidence level. So the advice says, ask your interlocutor how they have determined that their belief is true or how they arrived at their stated confidence level. They may provide multiple reasons, but try to focus on just one or two, ideally those that contribute the most to their confidence. Um, for it's example, typical. Go ahead. it says, for example, you might settle on, quote, a powerful personal experience as their primary reason for believing that God is real. But whatever it is, you want to identify the main reason that explains their confidence. How come you married your wife? Give me the one reason, the one you're most confident. Give me the one reason why you married your wife. I, I, mean, well, I can't imagine a husband ever doing that. 
<laughs> I can. It's not true to life. John Henry Newman taught us, right? We, not just religion, mind you, but everything that we believe is in 99% of the cases based upon a conjuries of hunch, intuition, experience, sense verification, uh, witness of others, uh, theoretical speculation, all of which contribute to this yeah. move of the mind when we say, I assent to that truth. It's a t I can give you a lot of descriptive, you know, scientific, psychological, you know, ways we come to our beliefs, but we want to have epistemic virtues, you know, reasons why we should believe stuff. And that's the topic of SE conversations. Yeah, yeah, there's lots of stuff we, you know, that influences our beliefs for sure. I'm not sure. I'm not following My response to green. Go ahead. Please go ahead, Nathan. I want to know why, uh, if, if I said, I don't know, I have no idea why I married my wife. None at all. Would that be a good thing? <laughs> like, you're really? Right. I mean, I that's, up happy about it. <laughs> that's up to you. I don't think Would your spouse would be too happy about thing, it. Though, if there were no reasons, like, don't we want to make big, important decisions in our life based on good reasons? Um, I mean, but this is, is this is, this, on, is you know? this is confusing to me because he's saying that we have all these, we have so many different reasons for thinking something is true. And he's scoffing at the notion that we might be interested in identifying some of the main ones that contribute to your certainty or your confidence or the, the probability right. that you're on good footing. So what's the point of having reasons for your belief if they don't influence your confidence in the truth of the claim? one way or the other you know reasons reasons should be influencing that if 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 there aren't reasons propping that stuff up then what's propping it up because you want it to know, be you're true you're not making a bad decision yeah yeah we yeah, should explore the quality of our reasons and just because somebody asks you for one reason doesn't mean that there can only be one reason yeah i just right. heard this term the other day uh I was, I'm editing that video. I have a second talk with that guy, Caleb, and he talks about the totality of the circumstances, which lines up really nicely with Doug's talk that he did with the father's son that called in, who was saying, there are so many reasons for thinking that this is true. You, you can't, it's a 20 legged stool. You can't knock out, you can knock out 15 and I'd be just as confident that it's true. This, this is an interesting, I, I find it really fascinating that, uh, that's, that people are, they say that, and I get it. Like I have miracles, I pray, I, I was raised with this. It gives me a good feeling. Like they probably literally do have 30 or 40 or 50 reasons. But it's my, my view is that, uh, I'm of the view that the reasons should be contributing to our confidence. And I think they do. Like I will stop loving my spouse maybe if I have a good reason to do so. I think it could be problematic to say that, um, like, what's the alternative? Once you form a, a view, you never change your mind. Like, you should be allowing reasons to to permeate that bubble and influence your confidence level. Speaking, I'm going to mark him down. I disagree, but I don't know if uh, he truly understands what the point of this principle is. You put that down as a disagree. Okay. So here you go. Here's Anthony talking about this guy's you know, categories of belief and like a, you know, 
a proportion of how much confidence each belief is this what the, that's this is same thing right yeah but i think what the bishop was saying is that uh how dare you try to boil this down to two or three main reasons in order to lower my overall confidence because i've just got other reasons that will backfill well eventually you're going to run out of reasons okay and you well, should you should acknowledge that and all right, like, what is he saying? I've got an infinite amount of reasons that will always contribute to my confidence on this specific claim. That's a real big freaking problem, if you ask me. Well, you know, with the, the example that he's even using, you know, the why did you marry your, your partner or whatever? I, I could give you many, many reasons and we can go through each one of them and whether or not it's a justified reason to, to mm -hmm. marry someone or not. And I wouldn't and, just say, oh, but there's so many that we just can't even talk about. <laughs> and the reasons your spouse would probably be different than the reasons that you would give. I would imagine. Yes. Like, they won't yeah, be exact. And, and my reasons the day I married him are different than they are today. I mean, it's... Mm -hmm. And he may give a reason that you say, damn, that's a good freaking reason. That's now my number one reason. Right. Right. There's value in talking about our reasons. Yeah. The, you can also just say, like, what reason do we have? If you are met with this, like, I think I want a divorce. Well, what mm -hmm. are the reasons for that? Well, right, what if I just valid. divorced you for no reason? Like, <laughs> obviously the reasons matter. Right. We expect we expect reasons for the big decisions that we make. We should. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing it, then you likely have a bias. Right. Yeah. And I'm okay someone... with having a bias against my partner, though. No, actually, because no, because I'm a skeptic. And if there was a legit reason not to, there you go. I would want to know. Right. Some people, don't. some people don't. <laughs> some just, people yeah, don't. Some people don't want to ask those questions. Just to some go back don't. to basics here, if someone said they have a lifelong relationship with someone that they've never actually seen in, in reality, it's just someone they internally talk to and that they are married to, how would we feel about that as a relationship? <laughs> I, I don't I would think probably, we have a name for that. that. <laughs> what is it? Go ahead. Isn't it like, schizophrenic? No. <laughs> I mean, you. that could be under that category. I was going to say desperation or something like. But like, it's a, it's a legit thing that people, that actually happens to people sometimes. Mm -hmm. So just to be clear, he's disagreeing with the idea that when we explore ideas with other people, he's he's saying we should not, if I'm understanding him correctly, we should not be asking people for their main reasons for believing in anything. Or maybe Christ, uh, like uh, Catholicism. these religious views have an exception for some reason. I, I'm thinking, I, I, he, he didn't come out and say it, but I think he might be making an exception for certain claims. Yeah. Not just mm. Yeah, I, I think I, he's I, saying that you can't expect that. It's because it's just like we have a nebulous soup of like influences in our beliefs. Therefore, we can't really investigate them, inquire about them. Yeah. yeah. So my so direct crazy. question to the bishop would be why? Why can't we yeah. look at these reasons? Or like if you've got five main reasons, why can't we boil them down to five and why can't we explore them together? Each of them. And, or yeah. and, do you and, agree? and why can't and why can't we why can't we get an assessment of how much of an impact that would have on your your commitment to the belief? You, your desire to hold on to it and think that it's true and act out on right. it. Right. It's a fair question. Mm -hmm. We do it all the time. Yeah. Why, Why are you, you so the attached to this belief and not a different belief? All right. Mm. All right, let's okay. keep going. I guess. Yeah. Typically, 
ultimate fantasy. And it goes right back to people like Descartes. Let's find la méthode, right? Let's find the method. I'm always wary of that from Descartes on. I got an immunization from reading Descartes as a kid against the method. I found the method. There is no such thing. We come to know in such a complex way that that attempt to reduce it will always try to box you into a very narrow space. Unless it corresponds to la méthode, it's not true. Nonsense. There, there, a pox on your method. See, I say whenever I hear a method coming up, a pox on your method. We, we know in such a richly variegated and complex way, and not just religion. We do indeed know religious truths that way, but but across the board, scientific truth, psychological truth. Um, because uh, trust me where they're going with this. I, I haven't read the book, but I know where they're going with it. They're going toward wow. some okay. scientific reductions, right? <laughs> If you, <laughs> who's okay. Eric? We just buried the lead here. <laughs> the bishop hasn't read the book. Um, well, but he already talk- knows everything it's going to say. Is there? Yep, yep. He mentioned a couple different types of truths. I've never heard of psychological truth. I'm I'm really curious to know what that means. Is there? Is that a common phrase? Is that what he said? Yeah, psychological truth. I don't know. And he said, um, I know where they're going with that or something. I, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe he's drawn a distinction between the yeah. fact of the matter and then your opinion of it or how it is, how it's affecting you psychologically or something. He's hating, that, that, on this, maybe he's, he's hating on this method, and I wonder what his method is. I think he's talking about the method of SE. How dare you try to use a method to try to figure out Truth. I think. But, I think the method is the epistemology as defined by Rene Descartes, and he's saying that there is no one epistemology. You have to go with several. That's I think right. he's reacting yeah. to the epistemology part of our name. I think. Um, yeah, he's saying like uh, just because there isn't a method for something doesn't mean the thing isn't true. A method to understanding a, a thing. I think is. I think is what he's saying. I think I agree with that. Like. We can have a really good method for determining the truth and still end up wrong about it. Uh, Robert Hamilton says he's saying that there are other methods besides science and evidence. Okay, which yeah. is yeah, what's the method? Uh, that that's actually a good question. I wonder what his go-to method is for determining that something is factually true. Right. My suspicion it's it's the grand arc of history and the. Uh, the tradition of the church or something. I, th- I think that might be the case here, but well, you know, I don't want to put the words way, in the If you replace the word la metude, the way that he's making fun of it, with the Bible, <laughs> I think that you might have the same kind of position there, you know, to say the, the way that he's talking about this method <laughs> is the way a lot of people treat the Dally's Bible. Dolly's losing it. Dolly's losing it. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, in street epistemology, we want to uncover the reliability of the method that you're using to verify your reasons. I almost sound like Aaron Ra, but like the street epistemology version of it. I'm going to just vomit stuff out. But <laughs> this, this is what we're interested in uncovering by asking questions is how reliable is your method and does it live up to your own standard? Are you content with that, that method as you're using it to arrive at this very big conclusion that's influencing how you behave? Are you good with that? Is that good enough for you? Is that the best method that's available to you? Would you prefer a better method? Do you see any problems with your current method? Yeah. 
Could you use the same method to mm-hmm. believe in a slightly different claim, but the same category? And if you don't believe that thing, why not? Why not? Right. Yeah. And also uh, imagine, and this is what gets me, is now imagine someone else is doing it. Somebody not a part of this discussion mm-hmm. and they come in here and they're using our reasons to use a group language to conclude some other thing that we, we don't think is true what would we think about their reasoning and their thought process? What would we have to say to them? What questions could we ask to better understand why they're concluding that? Right. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Empirically, you got to form hypotheses, you got to do an experiment, you got to verify the experiment, and that and only that corresponds to what's real. A pox on that. That, that uh, illumines... What? an aspect of reality i'm completely in favor i love the scientific method but it is so which, he's saying, aspect, he which said, aspect of reality are we talking about here he said that <laughs> only the parts of reality that we can verify are actually reality is that what he said i think what he's saying is that um if you can't test it then uh, he, i think he's saying that we're saying that if you cannot test it scientifically you shouldn't hold a high degree of confidence. Well, he's not even saying that. I think he's saying, if you can't test it scientifically, you shouldn't think that it's true. I think he's saying that that's what we're saying. And I think what he's saying is that there are all sorts of different ways of determining that things are true without being able to scientifically test them. Yeah, and that's why I had that clip at the very beginning about the power of science is not in the empirical approach. It's the social approach. It's the public criticism part of it. It's us testing reasons against each other socially through just public criticism. That is the main driver of the progression of knowledge, really. Yeah, I'd want to know what issue he what issue he has with this whole testing. You know, we'll probably get into it. He probably reveal I, I hope so. Well, he just repeats the steps of the scientific method like they're just really monotonous and wasteful. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm wondering. How do people in the Catholic Church resolve differences? What method are they using? Are they praying mm-hmm. or lighting smoke or are they convening and reviewing the evidence and deciding how like they're managing a very large organization? Certainly they're using other methods for navigating reality than the grand tradition of the church or whatever method he's using. I, I would I would hope so. Like I, I don't think a church would be around very long if they weren't using some reliable methods to conduct business. Uh, I mean, <laughs> white smoke versus black smoke. I mean, <laughs> it's uh, <laughs> that's what indulgences for the Pope. are for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, uh, play. Do. Force me into that little narrow space, uh, and that's what all these—that's all these people from from the early atheists on are trying to do, and I'm resisting that. Um, you know, here's an example, Brandon. Sorry, I'm, I'm ranting here, but these these things bug me. These kind of books bug me because young people get drawn into this stuff. You know, uh, during COVID, I don't know if you've noticed this. The, the, the great Patrick Stewart, <laughs> COVID reference, now age eighty, has been doing a sonnet a day. Right, he's reading a Shakespeare sonnet every day in that beautiful mellifluous voice. Shakespeare is not religious, right? is he? Well, I've been sort of caught up. I am addicted to it, so I always no check idea. them out every day. And they're short; it only takes like a minute or so to read the sonnet. But he reads it, and um, you exult, of course, in the beauty of the language. 
you exult in the intricacy of its composition. You know, you exult in, in the beauty of his voice reading it. But, but, if you're the least bit sensitive, you also exult in the truth that's being conveyed to you by that sonnet. A genius like Shakespeare, not just a literal, an artistic genius, he was that to be sure, but also he was a, a teller of the truth about life, about the mind, about love, about relationships, about God. And it all comes through in those sonnets. Now, none of those sonnets can be analyzed according to the scientific method, but yet they are bearers of the truth. And I, I, re I resist any method that's going to tell me, oh, that doesn't bear the truth. No, no, no. Those sonnets of Shakespeare, they, they're beautiful, I guess, and they're literarily interesting, but they don't bear the truth. Nonsense. They do, just as Plato bears the truth, even though he's not a scientist, right? Okay, hopefully that was a good enemy. Go ahead. What do you think, uh, Dolly? Go ahead. You haven't talked too much. I'm curious. I, I said, I resist any method that can result in truth without comprehension. If I don't know what it means, I cannot claim to know if it's true. Yeah. Mm. He says, he says sonnets are bearers of the truth. How is he defining the word truth? We, mm, yeah. that, that is crucial. That is crucial. Yeah. My suspicion is if the, if the sonnet resonates with me, if I feel a sense of awe, then it's, it's true to me. That's how I, it, it resonated with me to the point where yeah, I'm moved I heard by too. it. That's what, that's how I think he's using the word true. When we're engaging with people about how you determine that something is true, I'm using it to explore how you determine that it's factually true in reality, independent of how you might be moved by words by an artist or an author. I find it shocking, honestly, to, to, to see this person use truth in this way. It, it's, it's despicable to me. You know, it's an, it's an insult. I'm noticing that people are having trouble accepting. So when we talk about true things and we say, we bring up things like opinions and personalities and, you know, I thought that sonnet was beautiful and I thought it sucked. Okay. Well, yes, you're both right. When, when we're talking about opinions and personalities and the, the stuff like that, doesn't, isn't there a different kind of true? Like, isn't there, a different true way, for. a different word we can be using. True for, yeah. When I met Peter Bogosian at the gym, I brought that up. And he it was like, yeah, there's things that are a matter of taste. True for. And then there's the reality in which you and I both share. The reality <clears throat> that existed before you were born and that will probably continue to exist after you die. That is independent of you. And we have to like, our truth and that capital T truth is just uh, descriptions that accurately match that reality that we share. And oftentimes people think of the word reality and they'll think of like their own perception, like the reality that I go through. That's not what street epistemology is trying to do. We're trying to point out, in my view, I think we're trying to point out, hey, we're sharing a reality and in order to resolve disputes about what to do within this reality, how do we uh, how do we come to conclusions about the reality you and I share? Not not our own minds, but our environment and the laws of physics. 
Well, so does that mean then that if it's true for, then it is automatically true? If I'm being honest. So like my, I could have a favorite movie and if I'm being honest about what my favorite movie is, then that's true though. It's only true for me. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. It may not be true to anyone else. That'd be a matter yeah. of taste. So th- and hopefully I think... I'm interpreting Peter's ideas correctly, but yeah, go ahead. I think he's viewing truth as a preference that mm. I enjoy the sonnet and because I enjoy it and it resonates with me, I'm calling it true. That there's now, some kind of truth to it. Right. It's factually true that he is enjoying the sonnet and it's moving him. That okay. is, unless he's lying and deceiving me to make me think that he likes Shakespeare or something. But um, I think it's factually true that he was moved when he read the sonnet by Shakespeare. But he's conflating that fact with the fact, well, he doesn't get into it here with Shakespeare, but he lever- he bounces off of this. He leverages this point when it comes to his God being real. And that comes up a little bit later. Maybe I can throw him a bone. I have another quick excerpt from Kind of Inquisitors that relates to knowledge and truth being a little outside of, you know, crisp uh, empirical verification. Uh, Let me know what you think about this. A theme of this book is that the purview of the public checking process of the science game is in no way limited to the experimental sciences. Checking can mean performing crisply definitive experiments, (laughs) but even in the hardest of the sciences, the means of testing include not just lab experimentation, but thought experimentation, logical analysis, consistency with established facts, consistency with personal experience, facial plausibility, proponents and opponents credibility, um, and the residual X factor we call persuasiveness. All of that and more qualifies as checking as long as no one has final say and no one gets special authority. No, I'm not claiming that all methods of checking are created equal and anything goes. I would rather have my drugs tested in a double-blind controlled trial than in an online debate. I am saying that I would rather have the online debate and than nothing at all. It, too, can find error and build knowledge. So, yeah, in real life, crisp empirical verification is only a small part of what people in the science game do. And in many disciplines, ethics, literary criticism interpretive history, philosophy, much of journalism, much of economics, and so on. Crisp empirical verification hardly ever happens at all. So I think that's what he's getting at. Hmm. Mm. But I think he's going a little too far with like more than that. It's, yeah. it's like feelings and other wooey spiritual type ways that are that, that we can just reject through public criticism we can ignore these bad ways okay i hit play oh by the way somebody's commenting uh i I can't show the comment but it's by alan um i'm actually deeply disturbed by the fact that that one of the hosts believes in the voter fraud conspiracy what evidence does he have to think that there's voter fraud i hope that that's a joke (laughs) (laughs) If, if you if you listen to me and you walked away with that then I don't know. Yeah. I don't know to tell you. If you're 10% on something, 10% on something, does that mean you think it's the case? Yeah. Less than 50 I think, I think, is not I think belief. I clarified and lo- even lowered right. it down to a two. It's probably even a one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Just as Bach the truth and Mozart bears the truth, though they're not following the scientific method. 
And so religion, which is a close cousin to art and poetry and so on, religion bears a truth that cannot be reduced to the scientific mm -hmm. method. Okay, end of my rant for today. Wow. <laughs> yeah, so he does he does tie it together. These topics with you, Bishop, because I, I feel like we're going to have to. Okay, so that that was the. I guess I paused it too soon. That is the. He is actually putting religion on equal footing mm -hmm. with art, with wow. the interpretation of art. So what religion happens, is as true as poetry. What happens, Robert, when two people w read a sonnet by Shakespeare, and Jenna loves it and I hate it? Are, are it's we just both? true for me. It's true for me. <laughs> yeah. How many sonnets does it take? For about space travel for us to actually land a, you know, a robot the size of an SUV on Mars. <laughs> Could we write a sonnet to help us figure out, uh, yeah, derive the, the right mixture of fuel to get a probe to Mars or something like that? Or is there a sonnet that can actually verify that teapot that's supposed to be circling? Okay, I'm, I'm going to be really charitable. I'm going I'm to try to straw man this. I'm, I'm going to be like Dolly here. I'm oh, try boy. To straw man. This, is, this is going to be hard. I could I could get off of this this uh, later tonight when I'm drinking a beer or a little glass of wine. I'm going to read a, a, a sonnet by Shakespeare. I don't think I've ever read one since high school. Now, I might be motivated from reading that to go out and find the right fuel mixture to get a probe to Mars, right? Like it mm. could inspire me to do that. But there's nothing really true about art. These are these are subjective interpretations that motivate us to behave. That is factually true, right? Are you guys on board with that? Yeah, like when you when you go to a, a museum and you're looking at paintings and everything and you say, that's true. Well, what does that mean? You have to if ask you them. look at a painting and it's, and it's true. I don't know what that means. <laughs> As someone in the film industry who has made a feature film, I can kind of relate to like the truth of like an art piece or like the, you know, like a film we are kind of making an argument. We are trying to make a statement or a message going through, but we don't make specific, you know, stuff like that where it's like, but, it's kind of like we're saying if people act in this way, they would be likely to live a better life. Or if they fail to act in certain ways, they might, you know, hurt themselves or others. Like, you know, this is a warning for people, but that's as far as you can go. It's like a rules of thumb generator. These, these things. Well, it's like, say that, you know, th there's a story, the boy who cries wolf, who teaches you not to lie, right? Well, say somebody really botched the story and gives you the impression that it's actually better to lie. Is that still true? Mm. Especially when I can read that story and be motivated to start lying to people and my life improves. Like I, I might get a better job because I've lied on my resume or something. So yeah, um, this this conflation with the word true and putting religion on equal footing <clears throat> with art was was very surprising to me when I watched this the first time. But I, actually, it, it makes I'm, sense I'm, though because I'm, I'm, it used I'm actually, to have, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, it just when I thought about religion and the way that I used to think about art, it it all just gave you feelings, and so I can see why somebody who is spiritual or religious and whatever might put those two in the same cousin categories like he put it because they do bring about emotions here's the shocker like i think he's right i think i think religion is on equal footing with art <laughs> because it equal? gives us ants right like hmm equal though 
um, I think so. Equal in the sense of, uh, I'll have to think about it a little bit more. But I, yeah, I think I think equal in terms of the the amount of um, equal in terms of the amount of respect we should give it in allowing it to influence people that make decisions, like make real world decisions. Right. Someone's got a uh, hungry cat in the background. Feed oh, yes, yeah, I do. Sorry. A hungry cat. <laughs> he, he just wants to go outside and it's dark and he's not uh, going. There's there's owls outside. Not going to happen. So. Ooh, yeah. yeah. I just I just bought three plastic owls and filled them with sand because we have a hawk that's eating the fish in our pond. So oh, no. More we have, I've, got, I've got fake owls in my backyard. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Put a heart monitor. No, but get you going. Because it's because young people are being influenced by these people. And it, this is not a trivial matter because you and I both know that they're being led away from the faith by these simple minded, superficial um, uh, so-called epistemologies. But go ahead. Young people just need to read more sonnets, I guess. <laughs> or maybe more complicated epistemologies are really the solution. Like, why are you taking a crap on simple epistemologies? Like simple epistemologies could be reliable epistemologies. Um, leading people away. Okay. Like I think if somebody were to run into somebody using SE, they could be led away from their, their views. There's no question about it. We've seen it. We know, we have a high degree of confidence that that can happen. So I understand what, it, I think there's a, I think there's a, there's an alarm or a worry here that's bubbling through at this moment with him is that, whether whether what we're doing in his view is actually noble or not, or we're sneaky or whatever, they're losing people, not just Catholicism, but religion in general. It seems like that's the case. And this is a really good way of interrogating people's reasons and helping them discover that maybe they can't verify it on their own. So in that respect, I mean, th that lead leading a person away or somebody leaving their religion could very well be an outcome of these types of talks. So I, I agree with them on that. But we're not we're not giving our own methodology. I don't think we're asking them Ooh. to reveal theirs, and then we're asking questions for them to explore their reasons and their methods to see if they're fine with that. We're not, I don't think, yeah. suggesting alternate methodologies and reasons. We're hoping that they maybe come up with those on their own. Correct. Yeah, jump in here and correct me if if that's different from what your motivations are, or how yeah. you see it. No, okay. the same way I think about it. I just project it on other people. So, like, if somebody else were using your reasons to to conclude something different, could they do that? And if they could do that, why would you? Why would you make an exception for yourself, but not for that other person? To me, it's really more about uh, getting along, resolving disputes. That's what motivates me to do this is resolving disputes. Yeah. Yes. On that note, I want to, I want to add like <clears throat> SE, the result of an SE conversation isn't agreeing to disagree. Mm -hmm. I, th I think it's, it's helping a person realize, or maybe yourself that, that I can't back up my certainty or the probability that I've assigned to this or the, the, the bet that I'm willing to make that this is really true. However, you decide to quantify that scale, like we talked about before. 
leadership at this point is worth it's worth talking about is how this approach differs from the approach that you propose in your book, Arguing Religion, which is let's talk about the arguments for whether God exists or not. Mm -hmm. When you focus only on the epistemology, you're getting into these questions about how confident am I in this knowledge? How do I know it? this? And it's sort of avoiding the more fundamental question of ontology. Yeah. Does God exist or not? Yeah, but like epistemology is exactly. interesting, but it's not ontology. Yeah, but you see that in the movie he's making is he's immediately moving religion into this kind of subjective <laughs> realm of, well, I guess you've had these feelings that tell you this is true. Where no, you've done that. Sure, I'm dealing with the objectivities that the sciences can verify. Come on, come on. That's a typical sleight of hand of a lot of the atheists, both old and new, is to push it off into the subjectivism. I'm sorry, but he, I think, is talking about truth in subjective terms. Yeah. Now, maybe, maybe it's different when it comes to his religion, but right? I, I, I think he's. I, I don't understand this. This seems like he's strawmanning me, truth, or us. He's strawmanning yeah. truth. Yeah. There's yeah, equivocation going on. I think. When indeed, as all know, there's a very rich intellectual tradition around arguments for God's existence, which are making an appeal rationally, but not scientifically. There's a distinction there. Don't reduce it to the scientific. They are rational warrants for belief in God. Gotta go, Jenna. No worries. Oh, Jenna had to leave? Oh, darn. Oh, she's taking uh, out her cat, probably. <laughs> okay. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. I'm muted. Um, but yes, thank you all so much for having me. And I want yeah, let's do it again. Thanks for your time. Anytime. How much? Yeah. Uh, I I'll, see I'll see you in a week. I'm on AXP with you. Oh, sweet. Yes. Anthony and I will be running the show next week. Cool. Cool. Nice. So. Looking forward to it. Thanks. Yeah, be fun. Bye, Jenna. Thank you all so much. It was nice meeting you all. Nice meeting you. And see ya. I can't wait to chat with you all again. See you. Bye bye. Thanks. Bye. All right, let's keep going. I think there's not much more. And it moves out of the somewhat murky realm of my little subjective feelings, and it moves into the realm of the objectively uh, verifiable. So uh, is there a word about that? Is there ever is there a section on the arguments for God's existence? I'm just curious. Not as far, not as, far as I'm aware. In fact, when we get down to step 10, which we'll get to in a second, it seems like the goal isn't necessarily to arrive at some shared truth about whether God exists, whether yeah. the Bible is trustworthy. It's to help people to become more confident and justified in their beliefs, whatever they are. So we can shake hands and part amiably, even if we don't find the truth together. It's not about being more confident. It's about proportionate confidence to the evidence, given good reasons and justifications, I think. Hmm. Got to give them kudos, though, for pointing out the fact that it's not necessarily about landing on one particular conclusion or another. So at least he got that right. Yeah, it's good. It seemed like he was dinging the author for not making a case for God before launching into his book. <laughs> That's the impression that I got. Like, yeah. What, what about, well, there's a different, he was talking about uh, the rational argument as opposed to the scientific justifications or something. Do you have any thought on that? Um, I mean, I kind of see them as, as synonymous. Like, it's still reasons. You know, reasons and evidence is is the main focus of. Yeah, I mean, if, if I ran into somebody on the street and they said, 
I don't really have a reliable method, but I've arrived at my conclusion and I have a high degree of confidence that it's true because of the rational arguments that I've encountered. Then I would explore the rational arguments that they think that they have to warrant their confidence or their, or their probability or the bet that they're willing to make. I'll probably repeat that a couple of times. All right. Okay. Um, that bothers a little bit. Uh, okay, let's let's keep moving through these, and we'll hit these last few ones pretty quickly. So step six, what we just talked about, was to identify the method uh, that was used to arrive at, a, at their confidence level. Step seven is to ask questions that reveal the reliability of that method. And the explanatory note says, your main tools here are the Socratic method, the outsider test of faith, which I'll mention here in a second, and questions that revolve around the falsifiability of their claims. Um, so for the outsider test of faith, they give an example. They say, if a Hindu woman had a similarly powerful personal experience that convinced her that Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva were real, would that be good evidence that she was correct? And presumably the other person would say no, and the street epistemologist would then say, well, then that's not good reason for you to believe in God. What do you think about this outsider test of faith strategy? It um, can I just say how great it is that he just modeled the outsider test for faith for 60,000 people who have watched this video? Yeah, Thank you very much. Excellent. Yeah, that's excellent. Grateful for that. The, if if the epistemologist did say uh, exactly what the guy said, that's not a good reason to believe in God, I would dun them and say, you shoot that messenger. That was some direct messaging, and that is almost guaranteed yeah. to develop the defensiveness you might be able to ask them do you think that is a good reason but that's about as far as you could go yep. you definitely do not say i don't think that's just oh, no, 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 no. Mm. you want to put the burden of understanding on yourself like just you know be curious and, and yeah. ask them why is it different don't presume how could you have an objection to the outsider test for faith <laughs> honestly it works. yeah Mm. I mean, that's the thing that got me when I was 11 years old. That was, uh, and I just thought of it one day, completely shocked my world. Mm. There's yeah. probably a correlation between when people go away to college, they tend to question things. And I think it's probably because you're, you're, you're experiencing outsider tests of faith every day with the other classmates that you're encountering, your teachers, et cetera. Right. That's what, that's what my high school Eastern religions course did. Mm -hmm. exactly. Comparative comparative religions for me, freshman or sophomore year of college. Faith strategy. It's silly, and it's a false dichotomy. Uh, in fact, in the last program, we mentioned this. Uh, is there something like a generic spiritual experience that a Hindu and a Christian might both have, a sense of the sacred? And might a Christian at the very early stage accent that according to Christian doctrine, a Hindu according to Hindu doctrine? Yeah, sure, of course. I'd expect that. But there's much, much more to making a claim like the Trinitarian God is real versus a claim about Hinduism. In other words, it's not reducible to one little subjective experience. That could be ingredient in it. Sure, that's part of the that conjuries of, of, of uh, causes to religious faith. But don't reduce it to that and then say, oh, well, there it is. You know, you say Vishnu, you say God, so you're both equally right, equally wrong. You're both crazy. No, no, no. That's one element, perhaps, in the whole process by which I so he's talking about reasons again 
that there are so many reasons. This is just one. Don't let this one thing rock your boat. I think that's what he's trying to convey here. Yeah, that would be contradictory to uh, him disagreeing, I believe, if I remember correctly, with the, with the fifth principle, which is get uh, the main reasons. We, we want to know the main reasons, uh, what's holding this idea up. And if 80% of the reasons that's holding it up is faith, um, we should we should test for that. Maybe there's more reasons, and that that's why we're looking into what are the other reasons, right? So, yeah, he's using like the analogy of the forest and the trees, and maybe like if we want to believe in real true forests, if we go down to the tree level and we find plastic trees, we don't want to go exploring a forest full of plastic trees, you know, that are false. So yes, there's lots of reasons in this forest, but we want, we can go down to the individual tree level and I, you know, inquire about the tree. Yeah. The reason is it good or is it, you know, not. I like how he calls them ingredients. They are, they are ingredients. These reasons are ingredients to how we formed a view. And, uh, and that's a big one. Yeah. Realizing that somebody can use the exact same reason or method to conclude that a completely different thing is true. That competes with what you think is true. That is a problem. That is a problem. You need to figure out a way to differentiate your beliefs or at the very least your justifications from other justifications people would give for completely different gods, for completely different religions. Right. Come to religious. Um, so see, look at the subtle move there though, is they're determining the question. They're saying, oh, clearly the only way you could possibly affirm this is on some little subjective experience. No, it's not. What? There's a whole range of things. And how about we talk about that, smart guy? How about we mention some of those? Sure. See, put him on his heels a bit. Yeah. This whole thing is designed to put the religious person back on his heels. So he's always fighting a defensive war. Don't play that game with them. Don't let them. No. No. Questions can put people on their heels, but somebody who is feeling attacked will be less likely to honestly reflect on the views that they have it's counterproductive so yeah. um plus i don't want to be attacked i don't want to be you attacked know? either yeah like when it's your turn yeah. to ask me questions i don't want you to like drop the hammer on me like right. I, I would want right. you to be working with me to figure out if i've used good reasons and methods to get to my conclusions um but i think in the book you know you know just a steel man or give i, I think doesn't bogosian talk about like he talks about jujitsu quite a bit and you're rolling with your opponent. And I think he does use some of that language, but in the long mm -hmm. run, I, I think it's problematic. It should be really viewed as a partnership. And that's what I talk. That's what Bogosian talks about in his second book, quite a bit working together with your conversation partner, you know, not yeah. putting them on the back foot, not shutting them down, keeping them open, helping them stay opened. Pete is really into using it. language like we and yeah. us. It's really helpful. Like, how could we figure that out? Yeah. yeah. Now, I understand because what's the result of participating in a talk like that? It has dire, you know, the, the outcome isn't too optimistic for people who are holding views like this guy. So I understand his defensiveness. I understand his need to try to position it in this way. It makes complete sense. But um, as a practitioner of this method and someone who promotes it, 
Um, it upsets me to see it misrepresented in this way. But I understand. I do understand. Let the title. Play that game with that. you. So last few steps, uh, step eight, listen, summarize, question, watch, repeat. So just recapping good. the conversation. Step good. nine, wrap up the conversation and <laughs> they give a good question to ask at the end, which is given the things that we've talked about, do you think that your confidence level has changed? Do you still feel that 100% is accurate or whatever they said, or is it perhaps lower? And then step 10 is to part company amiably. And, and he gives some good advice on Fine, what, yeah. what success looks like yeah. in this, these street epistemology what conversations. Um, so one, the interlocutor feels the exchange was enjoyable, positive, and valuable. Good. good. Uh, two, you successfully induced at least one instance of aporia in the interlocutor. Uh, three, both parties express a desire to talk again. Good. And then finally, and I think this is his primary goal, a right now. marked change in your interlocutor's self-reported level of confidence. So I think for an atheist employing this strategy, the goal is to approach a Christian, probably a fairly naive Christian, and get them to leave less confident about their faith than before. But Bishop... <laughs> select my interlocutors. Just, they select themselves. How do, the I, how do I select for them? Do, do I have something on the sign that says only naive Christians? Is there any way that I'm selecting for that? Mm -hmm. I just marked down two other agrees. As you and I have talked during. Can we pause that again? Like, what would they prefer that we do? Yeah. Show up to conventions where, where there are Catholics gathering and maybe a, a homeschooling convention and talk to parents who are teaching oh, their yeah, kids. Yeah. Like, what what's oh, the that yeah, would be such what, a crash what, and burn? That's what I'm wondering is what is the proposed solution here? Um you don't really you're not too crazy about hardened feathered. The random approach <laughs> is, is apparently upsetting you. What what would you like to see us do? And it kind of goes back to the criteria of who's who's qualified to actually put their beliefs up to this kind of scrutiny. Mm -hmm. Which is ridiculous when you think about it. During and before this episode. This whole strategy, which is essentially a Socratic dialogue, could equally be applied in the other direction. We could sure. equally go find yeah. a naive atheist who's yeah. never read a book on the arguments for God, who's never heard the brightest minds explain why we believe what we do, and get him to question his, his atheist yeah. commitments and have his confidence in God go up and his confidence in atheism go down. How do you explain a contingent universe? So maybe plant that. <laughs> That's not <laughs> a nice question. Yes, but Let's yes, stump please, our opponent. Please yeah. have them bring it. Learn SE. Come run it on me. Go ahead. I I will put myself on the block. I will be convincible. Try it. Go ahead. I think there's a problem though. When they learn SE. Careful practicing critical thinking is erosive to faith. They need to use like long opera gloves, like from the chemical labs. Careful, careful with handling the SE, because it's hard, <laughs> it's really hard on the faith. Do you remember the original concern too is like making sure that you establish a clear claim. Well, mm -hmm. what would be the, what would be the clear claim that the atheist would make? You kind of need to start with that, right? I think he they even agreed right. with that. So, um, mm -hmm. what would the claim be from the atheist that would be worth pursuing? I'm not going for Tom Jump's version of atheist. He mentioned that he he had, runs into problems uh, being strawmanned a lot. Is what I remember hearing him say. He said, you know, uh, they have they have this idea about God and I don't ascribe to that. And that's why they're confused. So if 
it would be nice to have that favor returned. Um, and this is why I don't like labels. Labels kind of comp like make things a little muddied. But if we were having a discussion about SE, then it'd be nice uh, for him to be like, so, okay, so what do you mean by that? And could you tell me what you mean? I want to charitably interpret it. Yeah. Labels, labels can be problematic. That's why I really like scales, but I'm not locked into them. We talked about scales right. quite a bit. Like I would say, um, would you mind if we discussed my my belief that there's no God on a scale from zero to 100? Would you be open to doing that? And then maybe we can even measure my progress as we're going through my reasons for being unconvinced that it's true or or what would move me up on that scale. Like I think this is this is useful in both ways, whether you're looking at somebody who's sure God is real and you're some, someone who's like an atheist who's not convinced by the best evidence that's provided to them. Yeah, we've done many talks with atheists out out in public i, I did uh, you know a few they're out there watch them works yeah. the same way engine universe so maybe plant that little aporia in the mind of, of an atheist aporia. why do you believe in objective moral values <laughs> explain that to me now in detail why you think objective or moral values are objective that's a fine uh, there's question, all kinds perhaps. of ways that the Christian can plant, should yeah. plant aporia in the mind of the atheist to get him or her out of that sort of cocky stance of, you know, I got the answers and, and I want to put you back on your heels. No, if it's a real... What? Wow. That is shocking to me. Because like, my whole position is I, I'm so full of questions. I'm so full of questions to the brim. Exactly. You know, I don't have the answers. This is we're why mo we're modeling uncertainty because yeah. we're really uncertain about it. And we're uncertain about our, their reasons for thinking that this stuff is true. Um, is there a certain cockiness? Like there's a certain, I mean, there's a certain amount of pressure that's taken off. If you don't have to come up with reasons to defend your position and you're asking questions and you're going along with it, like it's a little bit, um, liberating maybe or there's less stress i guess in that way but i wouldn't i wouldn't phrase it as as arrogance or cockiness it's typically the person who is absolutely sure that they have the truth and they want you to and they well that they, they even will say you also know that it's true too by the way i mean let's you want to talk about cockiness yeah, that's the height of it that's the that's, height the, of height, it. that's sure. the height of it or i don't even yeah. need evidence to back this up i'm so sure that it's true you want to talk about cockiness Let's let's talk about that flavor of of belief. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. I just it's it's a it's a little funny to see it being presented. Real dialogue. You know, let's go right back to Plato. You, you want to have a real dialogue. Well, then you know both parties have to be open to being put back on their heels. This is a very aggressive. I know it sounds you know friendly and let's end on good terms and all that's fine. You know, I'm obviously in favor of it. But it's all predicated upon, clearly, I'm the one that knows what's going on here, and you're a poor soul, and i got to put you back on your heels and make you less confident. Is that what Socrates said? I'm the one who knows everything, and I'm asking questions <laughs> because I'm... <laughs> <laughs> is, is that even the goal? It, the goal isn't always to reduce confidence. We Number one, yeah. I don't know what, what claim a person's going to make when I initiate a talk with them or... I might overhear somebody make a claim and then the thought crosses my mind. Um, that might be interesting to challenge them on and see if they can maintain their current level of confidence. So um, there's this misconception that a talk isn't successful unless somebody shifts in their confidence. 
and it's usually down, especially if the god if it's the god claim, and there's a bunch of atheists who are proponents of this method. I get it. Like that that's kind of a that would be kind of neat to see somebody realize that they can't back up a very important belief that influences them and it influences a culture and it's causing a lot of problems. I'm excited when I see that, but it's not my personal goal. In fact, I would feel terrible if somebody lowered their confidence in a claim that they really could end up justifying. We we want to find those right. reasons. Right? This yeah. is this is like unearthing reasons to to back up the the views that we are thinking are true. We don't want to be right by accident when we want to have the connections between reality and our and our beliefs. No, if it, you're really yeah, can you post? There was a comment that was pretty funny. Um, uh, it was mind onion. onion? Uh, uh, no. Which one? <laughs> Sorry, that's uh, one. Uh, mind funny onion. As well. Mind onion. They perceive it as arrogant to question what they see as established truth. That is what I think is going on. How dare you question this belief that's been around for so long? How dare you make us look silly with a few simple questions? That's what's going on here, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is all a facade. This whole this whole There's a dialogue. You got to go in thinking, you know, I might come out of this less confident. Uh, unless and until you're willing to do that, it's not a real dialogue. It's a manipulation. And so this, you know, street epistemology, it's not Socratic. This is a manipulation, is I'm trying to manipulate you into my point of view. So I don't buy that at all. I mean, let, let them be put back on their heels, too, by a smart Christian. I think that's it. Wow. Boy, they sure ended on a punch, too. Yeah. I think I was driving when I was listening to that. I, I think I yelled, like, What? I, I I couldn't. Um, it was really frustrating to hear that that last part of it. <clears throat> Thoughts? Is any changing of minds manipulation, or is all changing of minds manipulation? Oh, he was specifically would... saying if you are not convincible, then it's not really a dialogue; it's manipulation. So I have I have an easy solution. I remain convincible. So he missed me completely, more or less. Yeah, I think he was saying like if yeah. you're not willing to back off or or change in your own view when you're asking these questions, mm -hmm. then it's problematic. And I would agree with that. But mm -hmm. to call to call a reluctance to do that manipulation, well, if that was true, then the person that we were speaking with who was unwilling to change their mind would be manipulating us by not budging on their confidence or something, right? Like we're using the same logic. Okay. The key is like, the key is, I think, is to just to really try to be open to it, you know, yeah. mm -hmm. listen to their reasons, hear them out. Yeah. So who, uh, who reviews SE next? Uh, you think we'll hear from the Pope maybe, or <laughs> another five or 10 years? We'll work our way up the chain. Well, hopefully there's a rebuttal to this video. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking back on everything that we talked about. There's not much that that I thought we talked about that was too. I don't think I walked out too far on the branch there. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't know. What do you think? I thought that was a pretty good critique. Um, I, I heard somewhere between didn't feel controversial uh, to me, six? but I'm very biased. Yeah. What Nathan? on the? I can't remember how many points they actually addressed from streetepistemology.com. Uh, but I think Ten. I recorded anywhere between six and seven. One of them, it's like a half a point for 
agreement because he might have agreed twice. I'm not really sure. Mm -hmm. And only two disagreements on the actual core okay. principle, like how to how to charitably investigate someone's belief. Hmm. So I've got six to seven, and I I would love to be corrected if they want to if they want to reevaluate. But I heard mostly agrees to these principles on how to listen to people and understand them. Is that how I figured it, out part of the way okay. through that I was that I was marking an entirely different thing than you were. So I just went with mine. And so mine aren't really expected to match the, the circles were the ones yeah, that I did before we set. So I have a total of uh, four dislikes, four <laughs> things that he disliked. He gave four reasons altogether. And I have uh, eight likes, uh, but eight I was, likes, it turns yeah. out I was counting a different thing than you were slightly. I, I was counting on uh, on the survey, but um, mm -hmm. yeah, I was counting just like things that, <laughs> Things that we that were said on the website, and I was looking for him to to nod his head yes or to nod his head no. Mm. Okay. And I only yeah. saw two. Yeah, I figured. Yeah, I, I saw that you were counting a different thing. I was counting the number of times he assented or liked something about the thing. So you know, you know what else? I'm wondering what the comments are like under that video. Are there a lot of people who are like, "Thank you so much for alerting us to this Ooh. problematic thing on our threshold that is coming our way," or? Or um, you're way off base, or no, I've watched videos and it's nothing at all. Like I'm kind of, I'm gonna check that out probably after this and, and see what's well, going I on. I put a comment in there and I was just like, hey, if you guys, uh, if you if you guys want to interview me, more than <laughs> a, <laughs> I may have actually, I think I did make a comment on that video too. I think I did it in the live stream when it was playing because hmm. we caught, we caught it live. Do you remember that read? Like I think it was broadcasting live or something. Oh, did we? Yeah, I, we. I know I found it really soon. Yeah. yeah. On that note, though, like you said, like maybe uh, seven of the 10 were in agreement. Those other three, we shouldn't just blow them off. I think we should consider the concerns that people have about the method, like we've been doing from the very start, mm -hmm. and evaluate it as a community. Is this something we need to be concerned about? Is this something we can dismiss? Do we just kind of put it on the back burner and occasionally look at it? Do we need to modify the approach to address the concern that's being raised? This is all healthy, but it's mm -hmm. more useful to us when it's an actual real criticism that's not being presented as a smokescreen to continue justifying a belief that might be on the same footing as art. Mm -hmm. So bring your, bring your reasons uh, and help us make this better. I'm actually thinking that we might reach a point where people stop surfacing critiques because they, they may start to realize that we're listening to them and adapting <laughs> based on the critiques that we're getting. So the more, and, and also this is great. This is great advertising for, for this method too. Mm -hmm. I wasn't paying attention to the comments when that was scrolling. What was it? Just the, it was the, you know, circle jerking comments. <laughs> okay. All support pretty much. America needs this method right now. What, the world, like the, Nathan, the world, the needs world it. needs it. Yeah, the world. I'm needs thinking it. about myself. Okay, <laughs> America needs it. No. Yeah, you're right. The I'm world needs it. Be like, Portland needs this method, man. Portland, Portland you know, needs really it. Really needs this hard. method. Everybody needs it. this method. Portland's got Pagosian though, so. And they got you. We got some. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> yep. All right, that was fun. Wow, we two hours. Thank fun. you all. Yeah, we did one. it two hours. Boy, the Crazy. looks on my family when I walk out this door because I've had the internet turned off so that I can like direct wire to the to the cable modem. 
So um, I'm going to have a some mad at you. (laughs) Unless they found something on Spectrum cable to tie them over, I or on their cell phone. I think uh, yeah, it's it's not going to be pretty. That's okay. They understand. I put it on the calendar, guys. Come on, this was on the calendar for weeks. (laughs) Oh, he was asking. uh, Thank your family for that for me. Yes, go ahead. What what do you define as success? What would be a success to you? Because I think uh, Robert was also talking about that. Like a success would be somebody lowering their confidence. For me, it's the 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 dispute of belief is reduced in some way, either from my part or from theirs. Though that doesn't necessarily need to be the only thing. Maybe it's just um, learning something new that I didn't know before. Um critically evaluating something I hadn't thought of or getting them to do the same moments of aporia are good placing a pebble in the shoe that sort of thing for me yeah my my pass fail score is rapport is good at the end and if so then I can count bonus points for a raise or a lower in confidence I don't care which direction or a redefinition of the claim or a significant time of aporia any of those will be bonus points Mm-hmm. I agreed with those and this has happened a few times where someone just really comes out and says wow you really made me you know, like think about my belief and now I understand it even more or like I'm more clear about what I believe now there's something along those lines that's really good yeah I agree with all those and I, I yeah my answer would have been close to what Reed just said clarity giving people more clarity on their own perspectives and uh, and the quality of the reasons that they're that they're relying on to be sure that this is true. When somebody can think about that, that's the value. Awesome. This was fun. We got to do this again. Uh, yep. Gina says, "Thanks for this street Thank epistemology. It was an interesting critique." Thank you. Yeah. Thanks everybody for watching. We had around thirty to fifty people watching. It was really nice. Awesome. And here's where, does our, this, where does this video live? Is this on the SE YouTube channel? It's on YouTube, Facebook, and the Periscope slash Twitter. Okay. So cool. Yeah, let's wrap up here. Uh, yep. So thanks again, everybody, for watching. I'm Reed from Cold Curiosity. We had Dolly from Juggling Lessons, Nathan from Abstract Activist. All their links are in the description, and Anthony as well. Uh, and link to the original videos in the description. We like to do these every Sunday at uh, 4 p.m. Pacific. And uh, if you have any suggestions for other videos we should take a look at, any SE videos or SE critique videos, uh, leave them in the uh, comments. We'd love to do it. It could also be fun to take a bad example of a communication going on, an interaction, and pointing out things that maybe they could have done better. Yeah. That was episode number one. (laughs) Right, (laughs) Reed? Right. <laughs> with with yeah. uh, what was it called? Oh, Pang, yeah. Pangburn. There's some people. Pangburn, yeah. That was, that was episode one. Yeah. yeah. That's, what we're, well, that's what we're trying to do. All right. Thanks for putting this on. This was fun. Thanks, Let's everyone. It, it was awesome. Yeah, Thanks. great. The Street Epistemology Podcast is a production of Street Epistemology International. You can donate or learn more about this nonprofit organization at streetepistemologyinternational.org. The views, guests, and topics expressed here or not expressed here do not necessarily represent those of the organization. 